Welcome to the podcast of Eden Worship Center. We believe that God has perfectly revealed himself through scripture alone, and that salvation comes by grace alone, from faith alone in Christ alone, and that everything is for the glory of God alone. So as we study God's unchanging, inerrant word together, ask God to open your eyes, to open your eyes to see yourself and your own sin clearly. Open your eyes to see Jesus clearly, and pray that God would give you the grace to repent, to turn from your sin, and the faith to trust in Christ alone for your salvation. If you'd like more information, go to our website at edenworshipcenter.co. Again, normally we would have our kids come up here and pray for them, send them off to class. We are hoping, uh, Lord willing, to start Sunday school classes back uh, in October. So we're letting our schools be a guinea pig for us to see how that works by sticking all the kids together in one place. Uh, we're going to see how that works out in the month of September. And our hope is at the minute to have a Sunday school hour before the service. Uh, we feel it is so important to be pouring God's word into these kids, at least for the time being when it comes to this portion uh, we actually need more Sunday school teachers if we're going to have a children's church in addition to that. So we'll try and organize something maybe for like the nursery and toddler age because those are the ones who are going to have the biggest difficulty in this room. Uh, having said that, I'm super glad your kids are here. I'm super glad your kids are making noise in this room. You know why? Because it means they're here. It means they're alive. Uh, if there's a, a completely silent church, it, it probably means that there aren't any kids there. So it's a blessing to have your kids here. If you have kids sitting near you, would you just turn around to those families and say, it's a blessing to have your kids here? No, seriously, do it. Do it. It's a blessing. You know why? Because those parents come in here, and they have trouble keeping their kids completely silent, and they feel terrible about it, and they say things like, maybe we shouldn't come to church. They need to have people around them go, it's a blessing to have your kids here. Uh, Lord willing, we'll be able to resume some Sunday school stuff, some nursery stuff in October. So would you just pray that God brings an end to this stupid virus? All the people said amen. Uh, let's pray for our kids right where they are, shall we? Lord, thank you for our boys and girls. Thank you for the life and the energy that they bring into our homes and our church. God, thank you that we have an opportunity for just a little bit to pour your word into them, to pour your love into them, to shape them and mold them, to teach them to know our great God. I pray that we would take that responsibility seriously. And so now, God, we bless them. We ask that you would, not just our hands upon them, we pray, would you put your hand upon them? God, would you sovereignly save them? Would you call their name? Would you number them among the elect and cause their eyes to see Jesus, we pray. Lord, we can love them. We can teach them. We can do all the right things. We cannot save them. And so we ask you, we beg you, oh God, save our children. Please, God, call their name. Only you can save. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And so we ask you, God, save. Amen. Amen. Open your Bibles with me, if you would, to Exodus chapter 33. We're going to be covering a lot of territory this morning in Exodus 33 and 34 as we continue in our series in the book of Exodus. 
And I'll just, I'll just warn you up front, we're going to read all of Exodus 33 and all of Exodus 34. So we're going to uh, handle the in-between parts a little bit differently uh, than we normally do. But as you're turning there, I want to read to you from Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 23 and 24. It says, Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, let not the mighty man glory in his might, nor let the rich man glory in his riches, but let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me. William Shakespeare famously said, it's been repeated a lot from his play Hamlet, he said, this above all to thine own self be true. Apart from Christ, this is the constant rhythmic, magnetic pull of our lives towards self, towards selfishness. And, and everything around me has to revolve around me. What do I want? What do I feel? What do I need in this moment? What do I think is going to make me happy? Those become the things that define me. If someone asks who you are, you'll instantly go to this list of things that you've wrapped around your life that you believe define you. And God is going to say to his people in this passage, fine, good, I will give you that. I will give you exactly what you want. I'll even give you what you need. I'll give you everything you've ever dreamed of, but you don't get me. I will lead you to that place of promise and abundance, but I'm not going with you. The reason is because God's holiness and God's judgment Justice cannot abide our stubborn sinfulness, what the Bible is going to call stiff-necked. Now, for those of you who are over 40, stiff-necked means you slept wrong. But this is, this is more of an attitude, a position that we have taken with all of our life. God, I know you want me to go this way, but I am go it's, it's teeth clenched. I'm going this way. I don't care. Oh, here's the good news this morning. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 13. If we are unfaithful, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Christian, our hope is not in our ability to get it right. It is in our God's ability to keep us. So I, I want to do things differently. If you open up your bulletin, again, if you didn't grab one, in fact, it'd be nice if you had two or three of them in your row. We usually have a bunch left over, so send somebody right now to go get them and fill up your row with a bunch of bulletins. I want to give you the family discussion and prayer points at the beginning and let that shape the way that you think about the passage we're going to be looking at. Knowing God's character and attributes keeps us from thinking wrongly about God. This is an important sort of preface statement to this whole thing. We have to know who our God is, his nature and his character. That will keep us from making theological errors. Now, most of us in this room would never say, oh, I'm making a theological error, and yet we think wrongly <clears throat> about God and ourselves and the church and the world around us. So here's, here's the discussion parts. As we read through Exodus 33 and 34 this morning, look in the text that we're going to read, and then compare that to what you have in the nature, the attributes of God in your bulletin. And every time you see one of those listed, I want you to circle it. If we talk about God's holiness, I want you to circle it and write the verse number next to it. Like verse 17 talked about this. Or if we talk about God's justice, if we talk about God's goodness or his mercy or his imminence, then circle that 
Write the verse number next to it so that when you get home, you can read that attribute. Go through and read. There's a description for each one and talk about how we see that part of God's character in that text. So what does this verse tell us? What, what does this section of verses tell us about God's love, God's justice, God's holiness? If we rightly see our God, it will keep us from thinking wrongly about him and ourselves and our world. And then at the end of that, uh, in fact, it would be good to just read through that list of the attributes of God. Parents, it will do your kids good to hear those. Uh, some of them you may have to sort of paraphrase and put it in your own words. But have everybody in your family pick one of those. One, it, it's one sliver of the nature and the character of God. And then pray together. And have, have your kids pick one and then pray, thanking God specifically for that part of who he is. And ask God as a family to help us to see him more in our everyday lives. It, it tempers the way that we live if we're in a world that just believes that the whole of God is love. When God has revealed himself as love and holiness and justice and mercy and wrath, all of those things together form who our God is. So let's pray together as a family and ask that God would help us to see him in who he is. And here's the reason we're doing this. Theology always, not always, theology should always lead to doxology. So there's a lot of churches today that really cringe at the word theology. And they instantly think of dead religion, unmoved hearts, people just sitting in a pew trying to have all the right answers. Here's what theology means. It's a compound word. It means to see God. And see is the same sort of observational word that you see in scientific study, that I'm going to see and watch and observe that I might learn, that I'm going to watch and learn and see who God is, that I might know him. And that should always lead to doxology, which again is another compound word, and it means to see and observe glory. Oh, if we can rightly see who our God is, it will cause us, church, if, if our hearts have been regenerated by the Holy Spirit, it will cause us to see his glory and savor his glory and worship before him. So here's, here's the context, just to catch you up on Exodus 33. God's people have been unfaithful to God's incredibly clear command on how they were to worship him and that they were to worship only him. So we, we've just spent last week talking about this golden calf that Moses disappears on the mountain and the people build this golden calf and say, these are your gods that brought you out of Egypt. Let's pick it up in Exodus chapter 33, verses 1 through 6. We're going to read this chunk. Would you just stand together with me? I'm not going to have you do this every single time uh, because we're going to cover a lot of ground, but would you just stand as we honor the word of the Lord in reading verses 1 through 6. Hear now the word of the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, Depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To your offspring I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites and the Amorites and Hittites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. 
When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned. And no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the people of Israel, You are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments that I may know what to do with you. Therefore, the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. God bless the reading of your word. I pray our hearts would be transformed into good soil this morning. That you would plant your word deep within us, we ask. And not because of anything we can do. Not, not because we're smart enough or we can deserve it. God, we can't think our way into this. We are asking, Holy Spirit, bring life to your word in us. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. God says to his people, I'm going to give you everything you've wanted. He's promised to Abraham generations before, I'm going to give this to you. He promised to Isaac generations before. He promised to Jacob generations before, I will bless you. I will prosper you. I will drive out your enemies before you. You can have literally your best life now, but you don't get me. All except for that last phrase makes wonderful best-selling books even today. Christians and non-Christians, what are the principles that I can live my life according to and be happy now, avoid pain and suffering now, have God's blessing now? And God says you can live by those principles and they will bless your life, but that does not mean you get me. This is one of the character qualities of God, the imminence of God. It literally means God within or God near in relation to his creation. Now, God is omnipresent. He's everywhere at one time. He, he fills all things at one time. And yet, up and each would stand at the tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. Why were they doing that? Why, why all the people's attention? Because God has just spoken through Moses, you are stiff-necked people and I'm not going with you. And now they're watching what's going to happen as Moses intercedes for them, as Moses goes before the Lord on their behalf. Verse 9, when Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. When all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship each at his tent door. Thus the Lord would speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. And when Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would depart from the tent. Which is a neat little glimpse of what's coming as Moses' successor, Joshua, is the young man who says, I'm just going to stay close. I'm going to stay close to the presence of God. I'm going to stay close to this place of meeting with God. While he's doing that, everyone is standing. Everyone is watching. They are hoping with their eyes fixed on Moses. Can he fix this? Moses is the mediator. He's the one who is going between the people and God. And Moses is praying to the Lord. Moses is arguing with the Lord on their behalf. Can I just make a little side note here? Uh, we don't need a Moses mediator today. Moses was pointing to a greater mediator. In fact, the only mediator, Christ Jesus. He was pointing to the one who would be the perfect 
intercessor who would stand before God on behalf of his people. And 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5 says, There is one God and one mediator between God and man. That's the man, Christ Jesus. It means it is false. It is outside the, bonds, uh, the bounds of Orthodox Christianity to pray to anyone else as a mediator, living or dead, saint or not saint. We do not pray to others on our behalf. We cry out to Christ Jesus, the only mediator, the one mediator between God and man. Moses is a picture of that. He's a picture of what is coming. And so in verse 12, Moses says to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you've not let me know who you will send with me. You have said, I know you by name, and you've also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Did you hear the repetition there? Exclamation mark. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And God responds, and he said, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And he said to them, If your presence does not go with me, this is Moses responding to God, If your presence does not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us? so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth. And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses, in the midst of this disastrous decree of God, where God says, I'm going to lead you to everything I've promised, everything you've wanted, but I'm not going with you, cries out to God. He doesn't cry out, God Give me a better plan. God, if you're not going, at least show us the way better. I know you said you're sending an angel with us. Uh, How about GPS? Something that's going to get us there a little bit more directly. No, Moses says before God, God, I have to know you. That's the, the remedy in this situation. God, I must know you, your ways, your nature, your character. Why? Because that's the one thing that sets us apart from the rest of the world. By the way, this is a really unpopular message in our world today. Here's the the entire thought behind this, that God treats a certain segment of the population special and different than he treats everybody else. That should jar our sensibilities just a little bit. That God has said, if you are in the New Testament, in Christ, if you're in the Old Testament, part of this Jewish tradition then I have chosen you as my people. I have chosen to put my presence among you in a way that makes you look different from everybody else around you. So what's the thing today that separates us as God's people? Considering most Christians live like chameleons in the world, just taking on the interests and the aspects of everything that we see around us, what sets us apart from this world? Well, here's what it's not. It is not the size of your house It's not the size of your car or your bank account. It is the active, blessing presence of God. It is God with us. God with us in a way that he is not with them. Christian, listen, this is why your unsaved neighbors don't need six easy steps to fix their marriage. 
They, they don't need seven easy uh, steps to fix their finances. Those things are only fixing a temporary thing in their life. All of their trouble that they're going through is meant to point them to their greater need for a saving God. And we do them a disservice by teaching them how to live their best life now. Now, I'm not saying we don't love them and encourage them and help them live by gospel principles, but we better be including the gospel while we're talking about those principles. It is wicked to either talk or give them a book that gives them all these principles and doesn't point them to Jesus. What separates us? It is the active blessing presence of God. Well, what does it look like for those who are outside of Christ? Well, Romans chapter 1 says that every single decision, every single sin, every step, every moment of their life, they are storing up wrath for themselves. That's very different. Oh, but for the Christian, all of that wrath has been absorbed, has been propitiated in Christ. He has taken it on our behalf. Verse 16, is it not you're going with us so that we are distinct? I and your people from every other people on the face of this earth. Moses says, without that, just leave us here. If you're not going with us, if your blessing, if your active presence doesn't go with us, just leave us here. Now, I want you to look at this and pay really careful attention. All right, so look at the person next to you and go, pay attention. Don't mess this up. All right, watch carefully. God says, I will take you to the promised land, but I won't go with you. Moses prays and, in fact, makes a really good argument before God. He says, God, these are your people. Your reputation is on the line. You're the one who promised this. We didn't bring this up, God. You promised it to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You're the one who delivered them out of Egypt. If you take them there and put them in the promised land and the wheels come off, that's on you. That makes you look bad. All right, now watch careful. And God changes his mind and says, okay, I'll go with you. I just finished reading a book this week that said that exact thing about how we should pray. That if we're constant and consistent in our prayer before God, we can even change God's mind by our prayer. Is that what happened? Because that's what it looks like. There's a, there's a lot of preachers who actually say that's exactly what happened. Only look back in your bulletin and locate the one that says the immutability of God. That God does not change. See, if we fail to rightly understand God, then we won't understand our interaction with him. We will misinterpret what's happening in the scripture. So whatever happens in this conversation between God and Moses, whatever God's secret will and secret plan in how he was orchestrating things with the children of Israel and with Moses, it has to fit within the context of the immutability of God, not because it's on some theological list because it is rich throughout scripture. I can't even give you all of the references. I'm just going to give you a couple. Numbers chapter 23 verses 19 says, God is not a man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should repent or change his mind. He has said, he has said it and he will he not do it. Or has he spoken, and he will not make it good? First Samuel, I just picked two. Uh, chapter 15, verse 29 says, Also the glory of Israel, that's God, will not lie or change his mind, for he is not a man that he should change his mind. I don't know how much more clear you can be than that. God is not like you. 
Here's what happens. When we start thinking about this interaction between God and Moses, we think God acts and thinks just like us. God is not a part of this temporal world that we are trapped in temporarily. No, God sits outside of that in all eternity. He is not like you, that he should lie. He is not like you, that he should change his mind. Whatever happens between God and Moses, Moses did not change God's mind. But I love what happens next. Verse 18, Moses said, please, show me your glory. There's no way that Moses completely comprehends what's going on in this moment. There's no way that Moses sees the fullness of what God has purposed and planned for him or these people. I love that he does not ask for a plan. He asks for a greater glimpse of who God is. Please show me your glory. And here's God's response. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord Yahweh. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy, but... He said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. And then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Uh, Let me just make one comment before we even talk about what's in here. Uh, God does not have a face, a hand, or a back. God is spirit. That's uh, putting God in human language so we can understand him better. Uh, God is spirit. He does not have those things. Remember, God is not a man like us. What's happening here is this entire passage is about God's glory. It is a fight for God's glory. It is a fight for that which is worthy of our worship. And faced with the thought of God abandoning his people, Moses doesn't ask for a plan. He doesn't ask uh, for the latest leadership book to come out with these perfect principles by which he can lead his people and have a successful ministry. He says, God, I need your presence. Show me your glory. And I love that in the Old Testament, Moses actually overstepped his bounds a little bit in asking for God's glory because God goes, I can't do that or it would kill you. And yet we are in the New Testament. We are on this side of the cross where God has put on display the glory of God in Christ. And so in Christ, we can say, God, show us your glory. Show us the fullness of who you are. And he reveals Jesus to us. God says, no one can see my full glory and live. It is too holy. It is too majestic. Things that are outside of us. They're they're attributes of God, but they are outside of us. He says, here's what I will do. I'm going to cover you up, and as I pass by and proclaim my name and who I am, I will give you a fading, passing glimpse of my goodness, my graciousness, my mercy. Christian, isn't that what happens when we read God's word, isn't that what happens when we gather with God's people? Things that you've heard before, sung before, read before, and yet in it, there's something in that moment where you just, it's like you get a glimpse in your heart and your heart just swells with this truth, this glimpse in that moment of the goodness of God, the mercy of God, the kindness of God towards those of us who do not deserve it. But in the midst of that, don't miss this. Here's just a side note. God didn't skip over Moses' sin. 
He didn't skip over the fact that just previously in Moses' quote-unquote righteous anger that he sees the people reveling in idolatry. They have this golden calf. And God has just given him the Ten Commandments. Stone that God cut out. Stone that God wrote on. He's holding these tablets of stone and he sees the people sinning and worshiping the idol. And what does Moses do with the first thing in history that God wrote on? Think about that for a second. He gets mad Wham! Throws it down and breaks them. That's crazy. Think about the family heirloom. The the most precious family heirloom you have in your house. Kids who are in the room, I want you to get in your mind the one thing that your mom and dad said, don't touch this. Like, if you touch it, we're cutting your arms off. Right? We go home from church. If I found that you touch it, I'm cutting your arms off. Like it's that serious. You cannot touch this lest you break it. Moses takes the writing of God in the Ten Commandments and gets so ticked. You think, you think this isn't ticked off? He gets so ticked off, he throws it down and breaks it. This just boggles my mind. And God doesn't skip over that. God doesn't go, well... Yeah, I was pretty ticked too. So, I mean, I get it. It may have been a little strong, but I, I, was, I was mad. The first time, Exodus 31, verse 18, says, And he gave Moses, when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone, written with the finger of God. This time, God is going to tell Moses, I'll write on them, but you go get your own stone. You cut them out. Chapter 34, verse 1. Here's what I think is happening here. James chapter 1, verse 20 says, The anger of man does not accomplish the righteousness of God. There are things in your life that you should be upset about. There are things that are unholy. There are things that are unjust. And yet, if we respond with the anger of man, it will not accomplish the righteousness of God. For Moses, who was the quintessential Old Testament prophet, this was a very prophet-like move. He comes down from the presence of God, holding the law of God, and goes, you have broken God's law, just like I broke this. And God says, you've just made more work for yourself. Can I just encourage you, when we allow our anger to take control of us, you may have a very good reason for being angry, but you probably also just made more work for yourself. More relationships you have to fix. More repentance that you have to do. If you get mad and throw things, more stuff you're going to have to replace or fix drywall. Don't throw things, all right? Can we just agree, I will not throw things? All right, good. Look at Exodus 34. The Lord said to Moses, Cut yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. God has revealed himself as a father, but he kind of sounds like your mom right there. I'm going to write on him after you broke him. (laughs) I love it. (laughs) Verse 2, be ready in the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai. Present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you. Let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks, no herds graze opposite the mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first. And he rose early in the morning, went up to Mount Sinai. 
And the Lord, as the Lord had commanded, he took in his hand the two tablets of stone, and the Lord descended in a cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head before head towards the earth and worshiped. And he said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us. For it is a stiff-necked people and pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us for your inheritance. In the midst of God saying, you're a rebellious people. You're a people who turns against my way towards your own way all the time. In the midst of that, in the midst of God's presence, in the midst of God's glory, we read in in verse 6, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands of generations, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. God says, we are not even close to deserving that mercy, God. We are so far from that. And it's actually because we are far from that, because we are rebellious, because we are stiff-necked, we need you, O God. Moses uses this moment of separation and, and revelation of their sin to say, that's why we need you. Christian, can I tell you right now, when you go through difficulty in your life, it's not that so you can kick yourself and say how bad you are, it's so that you can repent and go before the throne of God and say, God, this is why I need you. Without you, I am a mess. Without you, my life is hopeless. Oh, but you have saved me. You have called me if you are in Christ. Arthur W. Pink says this, they were God's people. By his redemption, they were his purchased property. Although they were unworthy and unthankful and unholy, but yet the Lord's redeemed. Oh, blessed, glorious, heart-melting fact that we may realize in such a way that it creates within us a greater hatred of sin and a deeper appreciation for the precious blood of the Lamb. Oh, there's something in seeing that they were so undeserving and that's why they begged, oh God, please go with us. Verse 10, and he said, Behold, I'm making a new covenant. Oh, what a foreshadowing this is as we look to those of us who live now in the new covenant. The new covenant established in Christ, and yet we see a foreshadowing of of this as Moses cries out to the Lord and said, God, we are sinful. We need your mercy. Without that, we are lost. And he says, behold, I'm going to make a new covenant. Before all your people, I will do marvel. Such has not been created in all the earth or any other nation. And all the peoples among you who shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. It's as if God says, in response to Moses' repentance on behalf of the people, yes, this is exactly what I was after. This is what I've been working in you the whole time to bring you to the end of yourself. Moses is begging for God's presence. The people are standing at the doors of their tent, praying, hoping, stripped off of their own glory, their ornaments, 
seeing maybe for the first time their full need and dependence upon God. And God says, this is what I was doing all along. I was bringing you to the place where you would see me and not yourself. Christian, hear those words today. This is what God is doing in your life right now. If it is a time of blessing for you, see the gracious, loving, providing hand of the Savior. Hebrews says, all good things come from Him. If you're going through a time of difficulty and adversity, maybe like David, you say, my sin is ever before me. See the gracious, loving call of the Savior, calling you to repentance and calling Him, calling you back to Himself. This is what God is after, that you would look to Christ and not yourself. But here in this, the warning that God attaches, he, he, it's as if He says to them, all right, this time we're going to do it my way. He's already given them the law, and he's going to restate it. Verse 11, Observe what I command you this day. Behold, I will drive out before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. Take care, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, lest it become a snare in your midst. You shall not tear down, you shall tear down their altar and break their pillar and cut down their Asherim. For you shall worship no other god. For the Lord whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and when they whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods, you are invited and you eat of his sacrifice. And you take their daughters for your sons, and their daughters whore after the gods and make your sons whore after their gods. For those of you who have small children in this room, we just said the word whore like four times. And I don't think we should apologize for that. God says it is a very serious thing when his people go after the world and reject him. It is adultery. God deals severely with that. Verse 17, You shall not make for yourself any gods of cast metal. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. Seven days shall you eat the unleavened bread as I commanded you, and at the time in the month of Abib... For in the month of Abib you came out of Egypt. All that open the womb are mine, all the male livestock, the firstborn of the cow and the sheep, the firstborn of the donkey, you shall redeem with the lamb. Or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. For all the firstborn of the sons you shall redeem, and none shall appear before me empty-handed. God is saying in representative language, all of you are mine. This entire people and population, uh, all the people belong to me, all of your livestock and livelihood belongs to me, it all belongs to me, and every time you have a firstborn, I'm going to remind you of that. It is a constant reminder, you belong to me. Six days you shall work, but on the seventh day you shall rest. It, catch this part. In plowing time and in harvest you shall rest. Well, what do our farmers do in spring and harvest time? Man, they work around the clock, right? You, you have a limited amount of time. Here's what God says. You shall rest in such a way where it feels like I have, I have no choice but to keep going. And God says, stop and rest in me. You shall observe a feast of weeks, the first fruit of the wheat harvest, the feast of the ingathering at the end of the year. Three times in the year shall your males appear before the Lord God, the God of Israel. 
For I will cast out nations before you and enlarge your borders, and no one shall cover your land when you go up to appear before the Lord your God three times a year. In fact, not just every firstborn is going to remind you that you're mine, but three times a year I want you to literally stop what you're doing and go on what feels like a week's vacation. Now, we love vacation today, don't we? We are a vacation people. But what happens if you're not guaranteed to survive the winter? Well, you work as much as you can to provide for yourself and your family. And God says, I want you to stop three times throughout the year and go send your males, send, send the men, send, send the powerhouse of the family to remind yourselves you belong to me. In fact, he gives a, a little encouragement in there. When they go, no one's going to come take your land. I'm going to protect your home. I'm going to protect your family. That's my job. Your job is to be reminded that you belong to me. Verse 25, you shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with anything leaven. Remember from the Passover, uh, the leaven symbolized sin. Anything that would invade our hearts. No leaven. Let the sacrifice, the feast of the Passover, remain until morning. The best of the first fruits of the ground you shall bring to the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Ah, we've read that before. That God says, as you worship me, as you sacrifice before me, you are to do it in the way that I have asked you, not the way that the world around has required you to do it. By the way, that's one of the reasons that the church meets today. Because we're, we're not here uh, in defiance of what our world is saying. We're not here uh, to meet the best show on earth. We're here because God has asked us to meet together. Verse 27, and the Lord said to Moses, write these words. For in accordance with these words, I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. So he was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights. He neither ate bread nor drank water. And he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant and the Ten Commandments. This entire passage is a fight for glory. It is a fight for who is worthy of our worship. It begins with the people seeking their own glory in their, their own ornaments, in uh, what we read last week, in their eating and drinking, in their idolatry and in sex. And it ends with God reminding them that they belong to him and restating his holy law and requirements for them. And here's my favorite part in this. Just from spending that time in the presence of God. Moses spends 40 days and nights on top of this mountain. From spending that time in the presence of God, he is changed. Christian, don't raise your hand, but how many of you feel like you just struggle in your day-to-day life? Like it's just a struggle. Emotionally, it's a struggle. Relationally, it's just a struggle. Your, your life just feels like one hardship after another. And I would ask you, is there a chance that you have been neglecting the source of your strength? You've been neglecting the source of life-giving glory in your heart, in your life. Because look what happens to Moses. Verse 29, when Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, and he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses. Aaron is who? Come on, kids. Who's Aaron related to Moses? He's his what? Brother. That's right. Moses' own brother, Aaron, and all the people of Israel saw Moses before, and behold, the skin of his face shone. It was glowing, 
And Moses' own brother Aaron was afraid to come near him. All right, so kids, imagine this. Your big brother. (laughs) Everybody's getting around for church on a Sunday morning. Your big brother makes it into the bathroom before you. He's doing whatever. He's brushing his teeth. He's combing his hair. And he comes out, and his face is glowing. It's so bright that you can't look at it, and you can't stand next to him. How do you respond? Ah! Right? And then then just runs away, right? That, that's Moses' own brother, Aaron. That's how he responds with God's people. Oh, no, this is terrible. Verse 31, but Moses called to them and Aaron and all the leaders. He calls to them because they wouldn't go anywhere near him. This is awesome. <laughs> and the congregations, and they returned to him. It, not, it doesn't say that they ran away, but they had to return. Just picture this in your head. This is an awesome little scene. And Moses talked with them, and afterwards all the people of Israel came near, and he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken to him on Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what was commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of his face was shining, and Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went to speak with them. Worship team, if you guys would come on up. As they're coming, I want to just tell you a little bit of a story that happened back in the early days of our church. As our church was beginning, uh, we had a rather large Amish family that left the Amish and joined Eden Worship Center, which was actually Eden Community Worship Center back in those days. One of which was David Yoder, who's one of the missionaries, David and Wilma, uh, down in uh, Florida, in the YWAM base in Orlando that we support. And David, uh, after a while, wrestling with uh, the law and grace, decided, I'm not saved by keeping the law, I'm shaving my beard off. I'll never forget the first Sunday, uh, they showed up with like clean shaven face and you barely recognize them. Uh, Well, one of the members of their family, and I don't remember who it was, and I won't even speculate on it now, uh, goes to him, and in response to him shaving off his beard, says, David, your light has gone out. That That was their response. Because you're not keeping our rules and our tradition, your light has gone out. Now, I think that misses this entirely. This is not what's happening with Moses. With Moses, he is spending time in God's presence, and he becomes a light. Oh, if we have to do things to earn that light before God, if we are the ones who are doing good works to save ourselves, that is not sustainable. But if God is with us, and if we are devoted to him, it should mark us from the rest of the world, and not just by religious activities. Not because everybody at EWC shaves their head and grows a beard. Although that happens quite a bit. For some of us, it's not actually a choice. Uh, the, the shaved head thing just happens naturally, and the growing a beard thing, uh, I had it off for a while, and then my family's like, we don't like your face that much. <laughs> How would you feel about covering that? That's a true story, y'all. Our glory is not based on our religious activities, but the life 
changing presence of God with his people. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 16 and 17 says this, I ask that out of the riches of his glory, he may strengthen you with power through his Holy Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And Matthew chapter 5, verse 16 says, In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. I want to ask you the question that I asked earlier. Is your life marked by God's presence and His light in the midst of darkness? Or is it marked by emotional difficulties and you just seem to go from one train wreck to another train wreck? Now, sometimes God works sovereignly and providentially in our lives and brings us difficulty that we might live through the midst of that difficulty in such a way that brings honor and glory to Him. But a lot of times we bring it on ourselves because we live foolishly. We live as a stiff-necked people in rebellion to God's word, God's presence, God's law. To that part, I want to ask you this question, where are you being unfaithful? Let's seriously stop for a moment. Do not dodge this question. Do not dodge what's probably the most important question anyone will ask you today. It's way more important than where do you want to go for lunch. Where are you being unfaithful? Your unfaithfulness as a believer doesn't remove you from the people of God, but it removes all of the joy from your life. It removes all of the blessing that you could be walking in. Where are you being unfaithful? By the way, the road out of that is repentance. That we see that unfaithfulness in our life and we say, God, I have been unfaithful. Make me more faithful. I repent of my sin. Help me to trust in Christ. For those who are in Christ, God has used every single step, every single twist in the road to bring you here and to refine your character. For those who are not in Christ, if you're not a believer and you're here, listen to me. God has used every single step every single twist in the road to bring you to this place. Only here's the difference. If you are in Christ, all of the weight and burden of your sin is on Him. And if you are not in Christ, all the weight and burden of your sin is on you. And if God is using every single moment in your life to bring you to Himself, to cause you to not trust in yourself, not trust in your own glory, to Take that off like those ornaments and to trust in Christ. Trust in the glory of God and you refuse Him. There will be a day where you stand before the presence of Almighty God. And He says, I did everything to point you in that direction and you refused it. And Matthew 25 says, depart from me. Depart from me. I never knew you. If that's you this morning, I would beg you Trust in Christ. It starts by just praying a really simple prayer. God, help me see you. It's the same prayer that Moses prayed. God, let me see you. Let me see your glory. Let me get a glimpse of who you are, that this God would want to save me, a sinner like me. We're going to sing a song in just a second that reminds us that there's never been a moment in your life where you have been alone. Believers and unbelievers. For the believers, even though you've walked through difficulty, God is using that to refine you. For the unbelievers, God has not abandoned you, but right now, all of that weight of your sin is on you. 
Again, Romans 1 says you're storing up wrath for yourself. Oh, today, turn to Christ. Trust in Him. Let's stand together. And as we sing, I want you to just take a moment before God. I want you to ask those questions before Him. God, where am I being unfaithful? I can say this because you're all living, breathing human beings. It's not, God, am I being unfaithful? It's, God, where am I being unfaithful? Oh, God, make me more faithful. Let me see it. Let me put to death sin in my life and let me put on Christ. And then, God, how can I trust you more? Just take a minute. Just stand before God. Just you and him right now. Ask those questions.